Imagine going to a church potluck in which everybody brings the best possible stuff. I mean, we are talking lobster and caviar and really fine wine, like it's not in a box. Steaks, oysters. I can't really stand the texture of oysters, but people like them, I guess. Uh, but, but oysters, all of, of the wonderful things uh, that could be at a meal. It's, it's very expensive and very delicious. And everyone is having a wonderful time. And then as the night kind of tapers off, a few church members who weren't able to be there earlier uh, scurry in. One is a uh, single mother who just gotten off of work late. And the other is a college student. They come in and, and they don't have a whole lot. Everybody else has brought something, but uh, they actually couldn't afford to bring anything. Uh, certainly not anything up to par with the rest of the potluck. Nobody even really talks to them either, save for those that have had a little bit too much to drink. Put yourself in their shoes. How humiliated would you feel? How left out? How second class would you feel? That's the scene set before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 uh, through 34. What's going on in the church at Corinth is the time of the Lord's Supper has become a time for the Corinthians to divide themselves based upon the fault line of socioeconomic status. Basically, rather than the supper showing their unity in Christ, it is showing the difference between the haves and the have-nots. Their lack of love for one another undermines the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and it undermines the gospel itself. And so, Paul will write to them, not as he did last week with some praise, but with zero praise and some biting sarcasm. He's going to give them a right understanding of the Lord's Supper He's going to remind them, and this is our main idea, that the Lord's Supper shows and tells the gospel. That it shows and tells the gospel and teaches us to remember the cross, renew our covenant, proclaim Christ, and pursue unity. I'm going to exhort you this morning, it's a a ready application, uh, to eat and drink together, to participate in the Lord's Supper in such a way as to truly honor God, as to truly recognize what it is you are showing and telling when you are taking the bread and the cup to your lips. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, we ask that you would fill our minds with thoughts of your Spirit, that the locus of our concentration this morning would not be on things outside of this room, but on your holy word. We ask that you would fill our veins with a holy electricity, that we would love your word anticipate hearing it as we might anticipate seeing a new movie. God, you are so good to us. And too often we, we view meeting with you here in this time as, as just something that is droll, part of the routine. But God, what we are doing here is extraordinary. We are celebrating the death of death which came through the death of Christ. We are are celebrating Jesus conquering the grave and resurrecting. We are celebrating the life we have together in Him. And God, this morning we get to celebrate by eating 
the Lord's Supper. The meal that shows and tells all of this. A meal that tells of the dreadful past where sin and death reigned. That tells of the substitutionary death of Jesus in our place. That tells of our future glory together with you and Jesus when he returns to judge evil and evil and to make all things new. We get to have a taste of all of that here in the present. God, the weight of these moments is extraordinarily great. It's sobering and yet it it leads us to dancing and singing in our souls. God, we ask that you would help us to hear from you this morning. Fill us with your spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, I think to better understand Paul's argument, what we need to do is actually extract his teaching on the Lord's Supper out of the middle of the text and kind of drape it over top of the whole section of Scripture. And so, we're going to start with verses 23 through 26, and we're going to spend maybe half-ish of our time there. And then the second half, we're actually going to address the problem of the disunity that is existing among the Corinthians. And we'll, we'll jump back to verses 17 through 22 and then drop down uh, to the last part of this passage. If you didn't get any of that, it's okay. Hang with me. We'll, we'll get through it together. But let's look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord... What I also passed on to you, Paul has received this instruction, I believe, from Jesus personally in a revelation. Other people suggest that perhaps Peter taught him the tradition. Either way, he has received this instruction from God. It is God's will that his people participate in, practice what he is about to describe, what we know as communion. He writes, on the night when he was betrayed. This is a peculiar way for Paul to start this section. He doesn't say on the night that Jesus began his long journey to the cross. He doesn't say on the night that Jesus went through the kangaroo court system. Not on the night that Jesus went before Herod. Not on the night that Jesus went before Pilate. But on the night he was betrayed. This certainly reminds us that when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, he was changing everything. He was reinterpreting the Supper in light of himself, which we'll get to in a second. But in addition to that, we are reminded that as he was teaching about the death he was going to die, the new covenant that he was going to inaugurate, we are reminded that he was betrayed, not only by Judas with a kiss, but also by the rest of the disciples. Right on the heels of our reading about the Lord's Supper in Mark, we read, Mark chapter 14, I'll give you the back end of it, verse 25, Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then, and here, Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen... I will go ahead of you to Galilee. I love this particular part of of this section. Jesus says, even though you are all going to fall away from me, even though you are all going to deny me, which is a type of betrayal, even though you're going to forsake me and I am going to die, I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise again and I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. Even though you will give up on me, I am not going to give up on you. Even though you will deny me, I'm going to go to the cross and die for you. 
I am going to rise up out of the grave to show my person and my power and to assure you that like me, you too shall rise. In response to this just kind of jaw-dropping statement about rising from the dead, uh, Peter and the others blow that off. They don't even catch it. They just right away, Peter told him, even if all these scrubs fall away, not what he says, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. This, this phrase, on the night he was betrayed, should sober us up. It certainly would have sobered up the original readers. It should have a harrowing effect on us, and I think cause us to ask this question. How have I betrayed Jesus? How have I made his death on the cross Necessary. What do I need to repent of? Immediately, this phrase is causing us to remember the events of Calvary. To remember the cross. Verse 23, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Just as we said a few weeks ago, this is not the Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper. It's not transubstantiation or the derivative Lutheran idea of consubstantiation. Uh, Basically, the the Roman Catholic uh, position, transubstantiation, just means that the elements transform, their substance transforms literally into the physical body and blood of Jesus. That's not in the text. Uh, the Lutherans believe that even though the elements don't actually become the body and blood of Jesus, that he is present in and through and around and by, whatever preposition you want to use, the elements. That's that, this is not in the text. I think it's, it's really simple here what's going on. is Jesus is saying this bread symbolizes my body, which is going to be broken for you. This blood pictures for you my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. It's similar to if I show you a picture of my wife and I say, hey, this is my wife, isn't she lovely? And you look at me and say, you're not married to a picture, right? You understand, I'm not saying that this picture is my wife. It's a, it's a depiction of her. Likewise, the, the bread and the wine are a depiction of Christ, Right? Also, if it was the, the Roman Catholic understanding, we would expect Jesus, as he's standing there and says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood uh, shed for you, we would expect him to pale and begin to look as a ghost as his blood drained from his body and filled their cups. Or maybe his fingers to fall off because his body was being broken. But he's still standing, still alive during the Lord's Supper. Furthermore, he also says, in the same way, he took the cup after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Nobody thinks that, that the cup that he was holding, it's been lost to history, is the new covenant itself. I say, no, no, the cup and the pouring out of my blood symbolize, they show to you how the new covenant is going to be inaugurated. The Lord's Supper is about Remembering what the symbols point us to. It's about remembering the cross, that Jesus was betrayed, that he was an innocent sufferer, and even though he had done everything right, he died for all the wrongs that you and I and everyone else in human history have done. 
We are to remember in the body or in the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus broken and shed for us. They are to draw our attention to the beautiful and scandalous death he died on the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God to those who are being saved. We are to meditate on the life and death of Jesus. And that's what these symbols are to turn our attention to. We are to remember the cross. Look at verse 25 again with me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What is the new covenant? Well, I I think we have to do a little bit of research to understand what the new covenant is. We we need to figure out what the old covenant was. And the old covenant is in reference to, and we, we know this, don't we, since we studied Exodus together. It's in reference to Exodus chapter 24. We had that wedding ceremony between God and his people. Remember, God had saved the people of Israel out of slavery and into sonship. He said, you are my sons. He had done that by his grace and his kindness. And now they have received the law. Mount Sinai was like a big thunderstorm. It was scary. Uh, The mountain itself trembled. And now all the people are standing around, and they've heard the law of God, and they've said, this we will do. We're going to do this. All of these things. Remember, God has attached blessings to obedience to the law and curses to disobedience to the law. Like, if they break the law, things are going to go poorly, but there they stand on this mountain, at the base of the mountain, and they say to God, we are going to keep this covenant. There's that ceremony that they seal everything with their words. They say, we're going to do this with blood. Moses sprinkles on them the blood of an atoning sacrifice to symbolize that if they are to break this covenant, they deserve to die the death of an animal. They see it with words, with blood, and then with food. At the conclusion of uh, chapter 24, you have uh, the elders or the representatives of the people sitting around and eating a meal with God. He is their God. He is, they are his people is the Mosaic Covenant. But since we walk through Exodus, we know that this doesn't last too long. Right? Immediately in Exodus 32, the people are rebelling against God and, and God is ready to wipe them out. He's ready to bring a right judgment on them. And Moses stands up and intercedes for them and says, God, don't, don't kill them. Show them mercy. And God shows them mercy. And this pattern uh, repeats over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The people rebel against God, earning his right judgment. And God withholds his judgment in mercy. This Mosaic covenant is not working because people are tremendous sinners. They they can't seem to keep this law. They can't seem to, to, to follow God rather than their own passions. And Jeremiah prophesies in chapter 31, verse 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not look like the covenant or be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt my covenant that they broke, even though I am their husband. The Lord's declaration, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity, 
and never again remember their sin. What Jeremiah is, is saying here, that the problem is not the law, it's our hearts. We can't keep this law. And what it's doing is it's showing to us our utter inability by our own righteousness to make ourselves right with God. The only way we could keep it is if we are given new hearts. A new birth. A new covenant under which our sins would be forgiven. Not on the basis of our own performance, but on the basis of God's promise a new and and better covenant. And Jesus, as He's instituting the original Lord's Supper, the, the last Passover and the first Supper of the Lamb, He's reinterpreting it. Which would actually be kind of inappropriate. right? When Jesus stands up and says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for you, like He is breaking hundreds of years of tradition. Right? They're going, no, that, that doesn't represent your body. It has to do with that stuff that happened way before you were even born. Like you, something's weird here. It's, it's, it's tantamount to a, uh, a best man getting up at a wedding. And instead of, you know how the best man speech always goes. I can't think of any girl names right now. Jesse, you look lovely today. And, and Rick, he's just lucky to have you. Aren't they a wonderful couple? And, let, you know, and they go on and give the speech. It'd be like the best man standing up and instead of doing something like that, saying, I know we're here for a wedding, but let me tell you all, today is my birthday. Let's sing happy birthday to me, all right? Happy birthday to me. It's out of place. Like, like the disciples have to go, what is, what is Jesus doing here? And, and what he is doing when he's interpreting the Lord's Supper is he's saying even before the Mosaic Covenant was given to you, God knew that you would need a new covenant. God knew that you wouldn't be able to keep the law. God knew that you would need a substitute to keep His law for you in order to earn His blessing. God knew that you would need a substitute to die for you in order to endure His curse. And he has waited until now. I have waited until now to take on flesh and die. So that God might be merciful. That he might be both just in punishing sin and evil and justifier in forgiving sin. Jesus is saying the Passover that happened even before the Mosaic Covenant, it was about me. You can remember the Passover as the, the people are coming out of Egypt. It's the tenth and final plague. Uh, what happens is God says, my judgment is coming on all the wicked in Egypt. And that includes you, Israel. And the only way that you're going to escape my judgment is if you take an innocent, blemishless lamb and you kill it. And you put its blood on the doors of your house and you eat it. Jesus is this lamb. And people of Israel, I mean, can you imagine what it would be like as the firstborn and, and everybody's eating lamb <laughs> that night and there's blood on the door and you're probably a little scared and you're just eyeballing that, that lamb that's been roasted on the table. And I'm sure it smells delicious and all that, but you think, if not for this lamb, I would be dead. Firstborn represented the whole family. That's why it's the firstborn that's killed. So the sins of the whole family kind of represented in this firstborn. But if not for this lamb, I would be dead. Or can you imagine being a father and as you uh, slit the throat of the lamb and watch the blood drain out of its body and its, its legs convulse, Turning, turning your eyes from the lamb to your son, thinking, if, if not for this lamb, this would be the end of my son on this night. And so they 
put the blood of the lamb on their house to say, God, that a substitute has been sacrificed. They ingest the lamb and are reminded that by this lamb's death, my life is sustained. And Jesus is saying at the Last Supper, this stuff isn't about a lamb. By my death, you will be sustained. Anyone who wants to live and have peace with God must take shelter beneath my blood. must trust in my broken body, my sacrifice. It is a striking picture when you read the institution of the Lord's Supper very slowly and you recognize that the centerpiece of the meal, which is lamb, is not on the table. You've got bread, you've got wine. And Sinclair Ferguson brilliantly said, I don't know if he said it first or not, But there's no lamb on the table because the lamb of God is at the table. Jesus is telling them, I am the one you've been waiting for. Doesn't this make sense? A lamb could never take the place of a human life, but you know who can? The God-man. He says, I can die for an infinite number of people. I can live for an infinite number of people because I'm the infinite God wrapped up in human frailty. This is the the new covenant wherein God gives us a new heart, a new birth, makes us a new people that are reconciled to Him on the basis of Jesus' life and death a people who have had their sins forgiven. And notice that we are a people. People, our covenant with Christ implies our covenant with one another. To belong to Jesus and to be in covenant with Jesus is to belong to and be in covenant with his people. And so when we are taking the Lord's Supper together, we are renewing our covenant, our faith in Jesus. We are saying as Christians, what I said at my baptism, when I declared my love for you, I renew now. I still believe. I'm still following you. And we're saying to one another, we love the same Lord. We have been made one by the same God. We need Jesus to make us right with God. At peace with God and at peace with one another. We see a little bit of that, that oneness, the community aspect. We saw it in in verse 17 of chapter 10 when Paul wrote, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body since all of us share in the one bread. We are reminded that as the people of God, we are made one in Christ. That our unity in Jesus supersedes and supplants all other identity markers. Now those identity markers stay in place, but they are subservient to the identity of being in Christ. So that in the same way that you've heard the phrase, all the ground is level at the foot of the cross, so too in the sharing of the Lord's Supper. There is no multimillionaire who is better than the person who is stuck in poverty. All are united in Jesus. All are equal in value and dignity and worth. All are to share the same love and affection and concern for one another. And so in drinking, we are renewing our covenant with God and with 
one another. I love John Hammett says in his book, your baptism is like your wedding ceremony with Jesus. A lot of wedding imagery this morning. But it's like your wedding ceremony with Jesus where you publicly declare your love to him, your commitment to him. And then the Lord's Supper is the renewal of your vows, right? And so we, we are renewing our vows to Christ and to his people, the people to which we belong. We also see the Lord's Supper teaches us that we are to proclaim Christ. It itself proclaims Christ. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did y'all have show and tell in kindergarten when you were growing up? Anybody? I did. And what you would do is you'd take something and it's pretty, you'd show it to everyone. You tell about it. I couldn't remember any of my experiences, and so I was like, what would Elliot do for show and tell? And so I think maybe he would take like a picture of a sandbox and show, show his classmates. Hey, this is my sandbox at home. Like My mommy made my daddy help build it and carry all the dirt from over the hill. He took like 30 trips of, of wheelbarrow and shoveling, and, and he complained the whole time. Uh, but I really like it. This is where, I, this is where we have like an outdoor kitchen and we play with sand. I'm going to show them what it is and tell them all about it. This is what the Lord's Supper does. When we're taking the Lord's Supper together, it is showing, it is proclaiming as we give explanation to the elements and partake in them, it is showing us, the, the, and it's an acting out of the, the death and burial and, and resurrection of Jesus. We're proclaiming his death. We're proclaiming his work. We are saying together that only faith in Jesus' substitutionary life, only faith in Jesus' substitutionary death, only faith in Jesus' certain resurrection can give us certainty concerning our eternal future with God. That's what we're saying. That's, that's the proclamation and that we are waiting, you see that phrase, until he comes. We're waiting for him to come. And to then again participate in this supper with him. The Lord's Supper shows and tells the gospel. It causes us to remember the cross, to renew our covenant, and to proclaim Christ. It also exhorts us to pursue unity. It's a symbol of our unity in Christ. And this is why Paul is so upset in verse 17. Listen to him. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, as it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at each meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and to drink? Or, you do, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Remember our potluck illustration from earlier. This is what's going on. They're dividing themselves based on the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, so that the very wealthy are, um, they are being celebrated and they are full, whereas those who are in poverty are humiliated and hungry. This is not a picture of the people of God. This undermines what the church is supposed to be. We're going to have a, a better understanding of this when we consider architecture in Corinth. Uh, basically, they had houses where there was this special kind of dining room, and you could get nine, ten-ish people in there. And that's where the host of the feast would go along with all of his special friends, whoever was special got to get in this room. And then there would be three or four other rooms that, were, that kind of surrounded this big atrium, just like a giant hallway. And, and those, like the less important people, would go into those rooms to eat. And then the least important people would hang out in the hallway. 
right? And so there was this dining custom that very much was making a division along socioeconomic lines between the haves and the have-nots. It was undermining their unity. And Paul says that when you do this, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. And it's also important to consider, in in the first century, they didn't do a seven-day work week, right? We're used to this Judeo-Christian understanding of the calendar. What they did was 10 days. There was a cycle. And so what would happen is, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, that wouldn't always fall in rhythm with a normal day off. It would be a normal work day in Rome. And so Christians in the first century would be really early in the morning or really late at night. And so you can see what happens here, right? The more wealthy among the Christians, they don't really have to go to work. It's easy for them to knock off early. And so they get together and they start fellowshipping. Then the, your tradespeople, they come in after that a little bit later. And then last and least roll in your slaves, the poor, who have basically nothing. Everybody else is already drunk. Everyone else has already eaten. They feel second class. And that's why Paul is so mad. Verse 19 is sarcasm at its best. He says, yeah, you're right. It's necessary that there be factions among you so that everybody can see who it is that's approved, who it is that's cool, who it is that is the best of the best, who has social status. Necessary to eat in this way so everybody knows who you are. And then he comes right back with verse 20. You're not eating the Lord's Supper. Like I, it's almost like, uh, who is this meal supposed to honor anyway? Because y'all are not honoring God when you eat like this. No, you're honoring yourselves and you are distorting the gospel picture. When you come together, it's for the worse. That's stinging. It's possible to come to church. What the word church means is to gather. It's possible to church for the worse. How do we do that? I think when we come together with a lack of love, a lack of concern for one another, I think it's really important for us to do things that intentionally undermine natural unifiers. What I mean by natural unifiers is it's just natural human behavior. You're going to hang out with people that are like you, that have the same interest as you, that are in the same life stage as you. And so I think it's important as a church that we take steps to deliberately undermine that. So like, hey, one of the ways you can do this is when you, just on a simple Sunday thing, when you come in and go, I'm going to resolve to speak with somebody who's in a different decade of life than myself. That's easier for some of us than it is for others. But you get the idea. So we get with somebody that's different than you. Another way you can do this is by simply uh, finding someone that you've not had over to your home or not had a meal with and, and getting together with them. What does it look like for you to make sure that you are not divided? What does it look like for us to make sure we're not divided along silly things, along the lines of silly things like locals and Stony Creek folk, white collar and blue collar, Republican and Democrat. You know, I, I like to lift weights and, and I like the Redskins. Like, if, if, our, if the things that divide us are, are those things, How shallow is our faith? That which unites us in Christ, our faith must more deeply identify us than do all these other things. The church is to be the place where mountaineers and who's and hokies hang out. It's to be the place where Republicans and Democrats sit down together and shake hands. And mean it. Be a place where we see our commonality in Christ eclipse everything else about us. A place where we love one another because of the way Jesus has loved us. 
Paul's serious about this unity thing. He's serious about telling them and us how we should consider participating in the Lord's Supper. So serious, in fact, he warns us. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Drink unworthily, be guilty of sin against Jesus. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Here's what jumps out to me about this. Spiritual sin has physical consequences. Spiritual sin can have physical consequences. Now we need to be careful. Because on the one hand, we, it's not like a math problem. We can't draw a, a straight line from a particular sin in someone's life to their current suffering and go, well, you did this, and so this is why bad stuff is happening to you, right? Uh, the book of Job shows us that we don't know everything and that there is such a thing as an innocent sufferer. So if you're sick, it's not necessarily because you're in sin, but it could be. On the other hand, we also see in the New Testament spiritual sin punished very severely right away. Y'all know Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Like they, they sell the land and um, Ananias rolls in. He's like, Peter, we sold all that land. Look at all this money I'm giving. And Peter's like, you have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias drops dead. A little bit later, his wife Sapphira comes in and Peter says, hey, is this the amount you sold that land for? And she says, oh, but of course, you know, aren't we generous? And immediately Peter says, the same people that buried your husband will bury you. And she dies. The point here is that spiritual matters are serious matters and can result in physical judgment. So be warned. Be careful about how you participate in the Lord's Supper. I also have this line, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean to drink and eat of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Let me clarify here. The word manner is really important there. Because this, this table is exclusively for those who are unworthy. And that's who the gospel is for. It's for messed up people who realize my life is stained with dirt and sin and soot and I can't clean myself up. I need Jesus to pick me up out of the muck and to clean me up and to clothe me with his own righteous robes. That's who the table is for. The table is for anyone who will say, God, I have tried to do things my way and it doesn't work. I need you. I need relationship with you, and I can't do it on my own. That's who the table's for. It is for those who are poor in spirit, those who are weak, those who recognize that they are unworthy. So, so what does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner? Two ways. Verse 29. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I think that body has twofold meaning here. Uh, one is a reference to the body and blood of Jesus, that we are sinning against Jesus. If we partake in such a way as not to recognize Jesus, that's sin. And as we have seen already, Paul has in chapter 10 and will immediately here in chapter 12 refer to the church, to you and I, as the body of Christ. And so here's how I've summarized this. First way to partake in the Lord's Supper un 
worthily is to do it with unlove. Without love. And that is without love for Jesus or without love for his church. That's the first way. Take it without love for Jesus or his church. Here's the second way. Unrepentant. The Lord's Supper is only for those who have recognized their unworthiness. The only wrong way to take it is to assume that you are worthy of it and that you need not Jesus. The table is open to all who will turn from their sin, all who will confess Jesus as Lord and follow Him, all who bear the name Christian. Which should be a relief to many of us. I've had this, heard this verse mistaught, believed for a long time, like I have to conjure up and make sure I lived a really good life this week. Uh, make sure I didn't yell at my kids. Make sure I didn't do anything too lazy. Not what this means. Not what it means. Jesus Christ loves you as much on your best day as he does on your worst day. God loves you according to what Jesus has done, not how you have screwed up. And the table reminds us of this. That's how we should come. Repentant, needy. God, I'm unworthy, but you've given me your mercy. You've given me your grace. We are to come acknowledging the God who has saved us, acknowledging the people that he has saved with us and made our brothers and sisters. And we are to do so turning from sin once more. Martin Luther said that the whole of the Christian life is repentance, and he's right. The more you, you grow in the faith, the more you recognize just how screwed up you really are. You're like, I sin all the time. You're like constantly repenting. God, forgive me. Give me your Holy Spirit so I can better love you by obeying you. The only unworthy way, two unworthy ways, is to be unloving, or unrepentant. Paul's prescription, his command here, his solution to their problem comes in verse 33. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for, or welcome is the translation I prefer, one another. The idea is the same here, whether you're waiting or welcoming one another, is that you are concerned about each other enough that you're going to wait to eat. So uh, in Corinth specifically, um, rich dudes and tradespeople, they're going to wait on the slaves because they're all going to eat together because they are all equally important. They have the same concern for one another. Let me ask you, how should you love each other as the church at Rockfish Valley Baptist? I would say like Jesus. Let me ask you, how should you treat someone that Jesus died for? Probably treat them pretty well. Should love one another. Welcome one another. Wait for one another. That's the, the solution to their disunity, is to be loving towards each other. Because their lack of love has undermined the whole thing. I am encouraged in, in this. Uh, I haven't been here forever, obviously. Um, but just in the short time that I've been your pastor, I've been really encouraged. Uh, I mean, uh, I like to see how much we are growing together. Um, other people see it. I, I can't tell you how highly complimented I am when visitor after visitor without fail, one of the things they tell me is, this is the most welcoming church I've ever been to. I don't, I've had people tell me recently, I don't think a single person failed to introduce themselves to me. And that's on a day when there's uh, more of you here, right? And it's not that impressive. Like, today it might not be that impressive, but someday that's really impressive. It's so encouraging to hear that. My hope is that people would get a sense of, and that it would be a true, true thing, us really loving one another. And that we would have a, a gospel-saturated culture centered on Christ. That we would welcome one another. So let me summarize. The Lord's Supper 
shows and tells the gospel that teaches us to remember the cross, renew our covenant with Christ and one another. It allows us to proclaim Christ and it reminds us of our need to pursue unity. As we prepare to eat and drink, I want you to ask yourself, what sins do I need to repent of? What person do I need to love? Who do I need to ask for forgiveness from today? Of um, Matthew 5, uh, 21 through 24, actually, this was the passage I preached on the day that you all called me to be your pastor, near and dear to my heart. I don't remember much of that exegesis, but I'm using it to illustrate my point here. Uh, This is what it says. You have heard it said, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, Raka, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Here, here verse 23. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Stop your worship until you are reconciled to your brother. That's the point of that text part of it, some point. I share it with you to say, before you come to the table, as you repent of sin, make sure that you are at peace with everyone that's here. There might be someone you need to ask forgiveness from. Might need be someone that you need to forgive. Think about that as we prepare to eat and drink together. This is a, a grand display of God's glory as we consider our sinful past, the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross, as we look forward to the resurrection life that is to be shared with God when Jesus returns to put an end to all evil. We bring these moments past and present, past and future together in this present celebration. The present celebration of our God. Amen.